Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security Confidential. This week, we're honored to have Shanoa Moss join us. Shanoa is a gifted IT professional. She's been in the business for many, many years. Uh, she has worked at a plethora of healthcare companies as an expert in healthcare IT and compliance. Uh, welcome to the show, Shanoa. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for, for having us. me. I'm glad to be here. You know, Shanoa, one thing, when I was uh, reading about you a little bit, I was surprised to learn that you have a degree in industrial engineering. Uh, industrial systems engineering. So it was all databases and system. process control type work. Um, I was already a nerd. I may as well get some credit for what I knew, right? <laughs> my, my, um, my idol growing up was my cousin Angela, and she was a paper science engineer. So I wanted to be an engineer, really? too. Really? And you know, one thing I, I've noticed is that a lot of engineers move on very, engineering is a degree that you can turn from one thing to another. And I'll leave it at that. You can, if you have a degree in engineering, you can do you whatever can pivot you want. Anywhere. My, my cousin Angela is actually a um, high level HR professional. She does a lot of union negotiating and, and HR management and leadership for uh, large corporations. She's worked all over the country. So talk about a pivot. Coming uh, to healthcare, heck, this last year, 2020, is somewhat unexpected. I, <laughs> it has been a year. <laughs> I'm curious, like, what's what have you seen as an impact? Like, other than the obvious where the emergency rooms have been overrun and we've had very unfortunate people get very, very sick, in terms of the system itself and the process of healthcare. So, so healthcare as a whole has been so deeply impacted by this and not all in a bad way. Truly, if you look around and you think about what's been going on since the beginning, you know, um, I was away for what was supposed to be the HIMSS conference the 1st of March this year and they canceled HIMSS and I came back home. And then right. immediately I started seeing the impacts of COVID because we were having daily meetings to talk about it. We were planning how were we going to manage it? How can we help flatten the curve? We're meeting with um, the state and helping to do planning. We're doing different analytics that we've never done before. Of course, I work in analytics. Um, that's my that's my favorite thing in the world is doing data. So um, there wow. there were things happening in healthcare across the nation that never happened before. We were looking at giant companies that have always been the snails, they've always been behind, doing amazing innovation, just out of necessity, just necessity is the mother of invention. And as we realized, we're gonna need more ventilators, we're gonna need a different way to do staffing, we're gonna need different ways to, to do payments. All of this innovation was happening through the payers, through CMS, the government. Uh, and so the healthcare professionals had to follow suit. Can you give us some examples, like any innovations that you saw happen that just stick out to you Look, with the year? Well, in things in the news that I think everybody saw, I suppose. Uh, Battelle Industries uh, worked with um, uh, Ohio Health, a couple of doctors that worked um, both at Ohio Health and worked together and lived together, they were married to each other, uh, came up at dinner with an idea to, to recycle the masks, the N95 masks. And uh, so their employer hooked them up with Mattel and they were able to 
do an original first time ever method to cleanse and recycle these masks and they're doing it for the entire state and other facilities as well as I understand at Battelle. And that has a very material outcome for a lot of people, and that that's a wonderful. Right. Well, thing. they were running out of masks, right? There weren't any to be had, so we had to figure out a way to use them again. Now, you mentioned you you do a lot of work in analytics. Is is there anything on the analytics side that changed that that is noteworthy? Anything with demographics or people or things that you noticed that might not have been noticed? Well, um, there has been a focus much more, I think, on um, on demographics for sure. The, uh, but we're looking more at folks who who have uh, needs at home. We're looking more at the holistic person. Uh, we don't just need to know um, it's a male or a female of such and such age and they have X, Y, and Z health risks. Uh, it's more than just the risks. It's um, what kind of support system do they have? Are they able to take care of themselves at home? Do they have uh, proper heating and ventilation? You know, when you have a respiratory issue, those things matter. And so it, it became more focused on uh, the different needs of any kind of variety of patients, not just a condition. It's managing at the patient level. It's very patient-centric. Uh, it's something we've been trying to do for years, and this brought it front and center. So that that's, uh, it sounds like that's a very good thing to look at an individual very holistically. Yes. Do you think that change was going to be permanent? Uh, I do. I feel like we were already trying to get there, and this just accelerated it. This just accelerated the entire effort. So we, we are doing more uh, patient-centric work and different ways of managing because people, some people just heal better at home. So we're sending them home when, when we used to keep them in the hospital to make sure that we could take care of them. We'll send them home and send a nurse you to know, visit or uh, we'll, we'll you know, set them up with phone calls from nurses and hardware. You know, we've got all these wearables now and we always talk about, oh, how can we use these wearables and what we do? Well. Here it is, you know, we can monitor while people are at home healing and we don't have to drag them in the hospital and cause all that additional stress. A lot of people are very stressed to be away from their home. And you know what? Anecdotally, that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, it. people are much more comfortable at home, right? Not in a hospital environment. And if you're surrounded by people and things that you really like, I would have to imagine that there's a psychosomatic component to this where you might respond much better to whatever therapy is being offered. Yeah, not being a doctor, can't really <laughs> know if that's true or not, but it, it seems intuitively it makes right. sense. And we're doing it together, right? So this is the first time that I've seen coordinated efforts among folks who should be competitors, uh, both providers and payers, looking for solutions to make the patients better at, at any possible turn, that they can find a solution, that they can work together, that they can save a life or improve a life or help someone to, to have a better quality of life. They're, they're doing it together. It's a coordinated effort and it didn't used to be that. So it, as I mentioned, the innovation has been fabulous. I've really appreciated what I've seen this year.
That, that's, uh, that is fantastic to hear. And it's fantastic at all levels uh, because the patient outcomes are going to be better. I got to believe um, that at some point that it's greater efficiency. So somewhere cost gets impacted in this entire cycle. I don't know where. Oh, it's hugely impacted. I, You're correct. <laughs> I mean, one of the first things we had to do was figure out how to get paid. There were some uh, executive orders um, from from CMS and from the president and from the ODH that, that helped us to find ways to facilitate keeping cash flow while really uh, patients weren't able to uh, come into offices or we're, we're trying to avoid keeping them in or having surgeries. So, you know, we're, we're trying to keep everyone safe at home, right? So uh, the entire industry had to find a way to cope with that. And it started all the way at the top with CMS and, and that ran downhill to all of us. Uh, there were new ways to um, diagnose, you know, to write diagnosis because it's a new disease. And the, then you had to have a way to bill that and you had to have a way to code that. And uh, of course, we have to have ways to track that down the road. We're going to be analyzing this for, for years and decades to come because it's a pandemic. And how long since we had one? What, 1800s? So we're, well, 1912. That's right. Well, you know, yeah, prior to COVID, many healthcare providers had telemedicine. Everyone was dabbing into it. And it became, I think it's become a big thing now. Uh, do you see that having a, a permanent major change in how at least you're working with your primary care doc that we may not need to go in as much as when we come out of this pandemic and we may be doing much more remotely. presently uh, you don't I've had an appointment with my provi provider uh, two times this year uh, one was in person and the other was a televisit and I can tell you uh, from that experience with um, that provider and other experiences of what I'm seeing and talking to uh, colleagues across the country we are wishing that we would have a permanent solution with it. We've always wanted to use it more. It's more of a time saver. It's more cost effective. You can have more people seen by the doctor, so it helps you care for more patients who need to be cared for. But the reality is it's hard to get the patients to want to do it. So really? yeah, the patients don't want to, to do what? a video conference or, uh. or do a teleconference or do a FaceTime with their doctor. They want to come in and see their doctor. And so the reality is wow. it's, it's up to the patients whether or not this goes on forever. See, see I had the polar uh, opposite thought because, you know, I, I needed uh, a few things. And for me, it was so easy. Got on the iPhone, scheduled an appointment. It was no waiting in a waiting room, no meeting other sick people, no filling out long forms. Everything was electronic and done i mean i i would have it no other way i think it was pretty darn cool I a lot of us feel that way like i i appreciated it and it's not who you expect like um you know some folks might say well the older folks the medicare people they probably aren't interested in it no they're the ones that want to stay home and use their phone right now they don't want to come in they don't want to get out and risk themselves so you're finding um, people uh, more younger are now saying, well, I don't want a televisit. I want to see my doctor. And we don't know the reasons behind that, right? So it's it's all a, a lot of research, a lot of digging, a lot of studies that still need conducted. But we, we are going to keep offering it, and we hope people keep using it. Uh, I hope it becomes a thing. Personally, I, th I hope it becomes a thing. I think it's a fantastic way. 
to deliver service. Now, let, let's switch something uh, to, a, to a slightly different topic here, and that is HIPAA compliance. Oh, um, it's something you're probably intimately familiar with, but uh, in this era where you're talking about all these folks coordinating efforts with one another, um, has HIPAA been a detriment to that or has it helped? Well, I, I that think court? that people have a skewed view of what HIPAA is. I think people look at it as the privacy rule uh, mostly, but it also is, uh, you know, I don't know if folks know that more recently in the last couple of years, the interoperability rules have come out. And as of November, they started to take effect and some more in January and there will be more in February. We're having a uh, lot of new laws out of HIPAA, they're HIPAA regulations, that they're just changes that are actually facilitating uh, this kind of care. So more data sharing, more openness uh, between providers and payers, a uh, lot of um, supplemental clinical information that a payer doesn't get on the bill is going out. A lot of um, payers are sharing information back about how providers are performing, how they compare to benchmarks, how they compare to their peers, and helping them to do a better job of manage their patients, all because of uh, this opportunity through interoperability to share information, to share test results, to share uh, different um, diagnoses and get a better idea of the risk that each patient is uh, under. They, they, everybody has a risk score and you know what do they need, how bad off are they, how much better could they be, uh, and you can see improvements and declines in their health through these scores because you have the information available. So HIPAA has helped with interoperability. They definitely then. are. Um, there are standards that help the data to transfer more effectively. Um, of course, bills have always been the X12 standards. So uh, when you're sending out uh, a claim and you're getting your remit back, they're always uh, been in the X12 standard but a lot of the file transmissions have been flat files. The more that they establish the interoperability standard, the more that folks are using CCDA and CDA and transmissions that are more modern, but also more secure. Uh, things are, you know, everybody thinks about high trust when they think about security, but uh, the, yeah, we were the reality go is <laughs> HIPAA <laughs> does a pretty thorough job of specifying that, that you know, data needs to be encrypted when it's stored and data needs to be encrypted when it's moved. And there are a lot, not a lot of rules, but a lot of good guidelines there. And so um, folks that are in healthcare today, they all follow HIPAA. The high trust, that's another story altogether. Well, you know, we uh, at Dark Rhino, about 20% of our customer base is healthcare related. Oh. Uh, that That's pretty significant. was not by design. It just actually happened that way. Yeah, one-fifth of our entire customer base comes from healthcare. Uh, we only, but in that, they are all supporting operational functions in healthcare. Uh, there's only one group of physicians. It's probably our smallest customers, a wonderful group of radiologists um, where we help them with uh, securing the, you know, transfer of, some patient information that they need to share, right? I mean, radiology, I guess by definition, they're 
need to share a lot of things, right. well, whether it's MRIs, X-rays, or whether what what have you. Um, but yeah, twenty percent, and um, a lot of them are younger companies, and it seems like a lot of them want to pursue high trust. And from what we have seen, Shinoa, it's an extraordinarily expensive exercise to go through a high trust qualification. It is, and it's not necessary right? for everyone. Um, and this might just be my opinion, I don't know, but I, I feel like I've talked to a lot of other folks who are in information security that uh, that at least share my views in some to some extent, if not completely. HIPAA is, is pretty strong regulation already for healthcare. We have what we need in place if we follow what we're expected to do in the guidelines in HIPAA. And you know, financially and, and otherwise, if you've got SOC compliance and Sarbanes-Oxley and all these things, if you're following all of those rules, you, you've already got a pretty good start on high trust. And high trust is just a documentation, more or less, that proves that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And you know, it, in healthcare, you know how how they say if if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. Right. <laughs> high trust is a lot more of that. <laughs> Uh, the people that I would think that should focus on high trust aren't really healthcare facilities or even payers. It's not the people sharing information per se, it's the people transporting it. So if I was to start a new startup that our purpose in life is to sell our software to a payer or a provider uh, to facilitate any of the operations that are uh, surrounding the transport of patient information in their data. I'm going to be a, what they call a BA, a business associate of those folks that I'm working for. Now I am obligated to meet uh, uh, the same set of requirements that they are, but also I'm doing it on their behalf. So there are more rules around that and what, what is necessary for a BA than I think there are for the actual people who need the services. Those are the people I feel like should be seeking high trust. If you're writing software and you want people to buy your software, there's a better chance that, that someone like me, a consultant, is going to recommend your software if you can get that high trust certification. But a high trust certification doesn't necessarily imply that you are more secure no it's implying that you what you have documented you have the proof of right. following uh, and it gives you a framework to follow to get there right so and it's not something you want to do alone oh goodness don't try to do high trust all by yourself. Actually, the first step of high trust is to have a third party audit. So <laughs> before you do anything, you got to hire somebody right off the bat to tell you how are you performing against the standard as it stands and give you a, a roadmap to, to get you to from point A to point B to, to resolve everything that's missing, uh, usually documentation or processes or procedures, and uh, get yourself certified. There's always a, a whole roadmap of stepping stones that you have to follow and everybody's situation is different oh i you know we've got uh at least two clients that are going through it right now and it seems like uh it is a multi-year undertaking for them uh, and it's going to it's it, it's had an impact on us as a security provider to them uh we are being obligated to follow certain things as a as a fallout 
And, and none of those are really out of the ordinary because for our SOC 2 requirements, um, we're following those standards to a large degree anyways. And, and we have to meet SOC 2. Uh, it's a check in the box that we have to have as a, as a cybersecurity company, right? Uh, but still, it, it does have flow down. It, it absolutely does. And the SOC does. 2 assessment, and, and some vendors now are actually using that as the basis to, to write a letter or a report that certifies you in high trust. So it's it's actually, a, that's a great stepping stone to, to, to jump off with. Do you have to still go through a complete high trust audit? The audit is mandatory. There's always going to be an audit. <laughs> and not just one, right? You're going to have to want come back and do audits. Uh, I believe it's annually, but yeah, the audit is step one. You have to do the audit so you know what's needed, and you know maybe the first thing they tell you, you need is oh well you've got a SOC two. Well you can use that to address you know check mark these three things, and there are all these other things that you still have to right. take care of. Um, a lot of them are physical controls. Uh, I'm, I'm always surprised it. to find that. Folks have a lot of good policies and procedures. They've got HIPAA written into everything that they do. But you you walk down the hall and the, the doors open to the wiring closet, or um, you know, <laughs> the front door. People can just walk in and go straight back to the office. They don't have to sign in. And all these things are part of HIPAA that that um, folks don't think about. But in high trust, you're forced to you know, reinforce those efforts and make sure that. You double down and secure everything, both physically and electronically. When we look at the breaches just in this past year, and there's been some significant health systems that have gotten breached. And I know some of the, and they are compliant with so many different standards. We don't always see uh, that, that there's a strong correlation between at least cybersecurity and the level of, credentials that you hold from a compliance perspective. Interesting. So I've seen a and, lot of organizations that don't have their own IT even. I don't know if you run into a bunch of those. But yes, we if do. They, if they haven't we got do. any There's IT. There's a large segment of our customer you know, why base. Are, they don't even think about those checkboxes, right? So so they're, they're reading the law and trying to comply with the law the best they can. Some of it's vague. Some of it's clear. Uh, the encryption levels are, you know, new things are being developed. It wasn't CCDA or CDA before. It was, it was, um, you know, all we had was HL7 and, and we do some ADT transfers and call it a day. But now uh, we're, we're adding more elements of data and we're adding more attributes of uh, people's lives, more facets of their lives. The social determinants of health are out there. Um, and that's going to help us get a long way towards all the analysis we're going to do after all this COVID stuff is over. But, you know. Well, you, you know what? Uh, surprisingly, well, not surprisingly, um, healthcare records that are stolen are worth a lot more than just an identity that oh, is stolen. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And that's been a big deal and, this uh, year. I don't know. I assume you've read since you've got 20% of your clients in healthcare that you know, there's been a lot of ransomware <laughs> attacks. Um, people are primed for it right now because guess what? A lot of the workforce is working remotely like we are today, right? So if you've got suddenly a remote workforce, um, hopefully you've got everybody coming in over the VPN. Uh, you've sent them home with their computers that are... Uh, already encrypted hard drives and, and you, you're connected full-time to the VPN or you're not connected, 
uh, and you're secure and safe in that manner. Uh, but then also too, you go, when they're doing these phishing attacks and they're using, you know, we just started using Teams at one place and right. that place that uses Teams is realizing, oh, we get all these emails from Teams. And if I'm a hacker, I'm going to send you an email that looks like Teams, right? And it's going to be an easy right. way in because you're going to click on it and think, oh, I've got a message from so-and-so and I click that and it's going to take me to it. But instead it makes you sign in and it stole your credentials. Well, uh, and We often uh, talk about that one of the largest security assets an organization has, and it's often underutilized, are its own employees and, and its own people. We feel like if those folks had a much larger awareness, without adding any more process and controls, you could become a lot safer. That's true. That's a lot true. Safer. And uh, that's why one of the things you'll find in any HIPAA audit is it requires at least annual training for all of your employees to remind them of all the rules that they need to follow, uh, minimum necessary and, and things of that nature to protect the data for their patients. It's an annual retrain. You need to keep checking in and getting that certificate every year. We think, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement, at least on the cybersecurity side from what we've seen in healthcare. Um, it seems like there, there's a, and rightfully so, a lot of focus on patient care. Uh, but when it comes to cyber, it's more of a let's do enough. But if we're not uh, at the pinnacle, then it's, that's okay. We'll accept the risk. That's the first place the budget cuts go, isn't it? Uh, let's see what we can cut out of IT. Yeah, it is. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to go there, but you're right. It, You know, if it comes down to uh, a new x-ray machine or uh, putting in uh, a better cybersecurity program, cybersecurity is going to lose. Yeah, up till now, I think that's true. I believe that the... Um, the recent ransomware attacks are putting a bigger spotlight on it. I, I feel like when I um, talk to colleagues, both inside and outside of healthcare, uh, former colleagues, I call them, folks I've worked with all across the country, uh, the, it's it's starting to be something they take notice. They're they're not just saying, oh, it's just another virus. It's it's a big scare because it's taking operations down. You're hearing about whole health systems with, you know, a dozen hospitals or more unable to function, unable to use their software to take care of their patients. It's risking people's lives, and that's not something we can tolerate. Yeah, we had, well, we had that episode in Germany, right, where the hospital uh, had to send uh, patients to a different institution because they couldn't access their right. systems. But is there also then, Shinoa, not a backup there? not of electronics, but uh, back uh, in the 70s where there were files and folders. Color-coded folders. We still color -coded have um, what, backup procedures. At every facility I've, I've ever been in, there were backup procedures for if the system goes down. Uh, I'm not sure what was happening at, at the facility you mentioned, um, and I haven't talked with those folks. It would be interesting to do so. But there are always backup procedures for when the system's down. There are always planned outages to maintain the system, and everybody has to know sure. what to do while the system's down. And hospitals are 24-hour day operations, so we need to know uh, every step of the way how to take care of things and keep 
keep things moving to care for our patients. We can't just sit back and say, well, when it comes back up, we'll figure it out or we'll document it later. Yeah, I, so there's still uh, a place for paper manual trails, if you will, of, of information that that's still possible and they exist. They haven't been completely eliminated. Um, not completely. And in fact, I've seen providers who still completely document on paper. They exist. Uh, I don't know if there's anything <laughs> wrong with that. I mean, it's kind of hard they're to steal safest. a file folder. <laughs> yeah. I, unless they're driving unless around with folders into in their the car. Place, yeah. <laughs> you, you can't really get at that data, right? right? And that's the one thing about cyber crime and uh, that it's become so prevalent is that people have realized it's uh, easier to commit. Uh, you don't have to leave the safety of whatever comfort you live in to, to commit it. Uh, it's very lucrative. Right. You, you can make out a lot of money uh, with uh, a little bit of effort, not too much effort. Unfortunately, right? still. And three, uh, you're not going to really get caught because a lot of this is being perpetrated by people overseas. Uh, and there is no jurisdiction for our law enforcement to go over there and do anything about it. And some of them aren't doing it just electronically either. The, these phone calls, these spam phone calls we get now are very oh, dangerous that's i've seen reports of two-factor authentication where the second half of the authentication is a phone call to your cell phone i've seen those uh as a hack mechanism as well so watch out for that it is <laughs> and there's some other problems with two-factor authentication which i won't talk about on the air <laughs> it'll just make it away easier i don't want to be the, <laughs> i i don't want to give away uh, you know but uh I will say this, when two-factor authentication is done correctly and it's done properly, it is it brings a great deal of security uh, to even where three-letter agencies don't can't really bypass around it simply. It, it's if it's the key is if it's done right, right? And the policy enforcements around it are done right. Uh, you know, that's just the, right the way it is. Right process and a wrong process for everything. Yes, there is, Shinoa, and you know that better than anybody else. You're being so familiar with processes. That, well, uh, before I was in healthcare, uh, you know, I jumped to healthcare from pharmaceuticals. So talk about being regulated. The FDA does not lift a thumb for anyone. So I learned a lot of practical uh, utilization of, of testing and tracking and documenting from that experience. The, the FDA validation processes for pharmaceuticals and for food services are very meticulous, detailed processes, and they leave nothing to chance. And, and do they do a great job of enforcing Very those? much so, yes. Yeah. Or the FDA will come shut you down. No, there was several years back, there was a company out of Cleveland that actually did get shut down. It was a pharmaceutical company. I can't remember the name. Uh, they were publicly traded, and their stock was even doing quite well. But somehow it came out after the fact that the data was manufactured oh, around. Uh, there's a whole book about that. Yeah. I, <laughs> there's bottle a again, bottle, bottle of lies, I believe is what it's called. Um, but it's about the an entire industry of um, of generic drugs that you know we're trying to make a nickel off of everyone essentially, 
starting with the the AIDS scare and um, manufacturing wow. data to to get past so that they could sell their um, non-functioning medical supplies and drugs to uh, unsuspecting countries, whole countries. Yeah. Read Bottle of Lies. It names every person by name. <laughs> it's very detailed. Wow. I, I'll have to... Uh I'll have to do that. You know, in cybersecurity, one book I always refer people to is The Perfect Weapon. I think it's a it's a great book if you haven't read it. Oh, it, it's a good read. It's an interesting read. It's uh, it, it it talks about how cyber is a perfect weapon, and I would tend to agree. I mean, you think about it in terms of the most asymmetrical weapon ever created. It, you can uh, disable a nation like the United States, and you don't need tanks and bombs and machine guns and nuclear weapons to do it. That's I've got to ask you, what do you think uh, the future is for healthcare IT in 21? What do you think are going to be the big things? Do you have any insights you might be able to, to I think us? that we've mostly learned that we can innovate so much more rapidly than we ever imagined. And some of those things that we used to say are, were a nine-month project or a two-year project, we're going to start rolling those out more quickly. I think that leadership has taken notice and they realize that they've been making cuts maybe in the wrong places in some instances. And I think that different facilities are going to start uh, leaning harder on IT. They're going to start leaning harder on the data. They're going to start looking for uh, better solutions, creating better solutions internally. They don't, aren't just going to be buy. There's going to be more build. We're going to go back to more of a build mentality, I think. More AI, more, more software-driven analytics, more of everything that is all the stuff that you and I worry about keeping safe every day. That's a, that is actually a very positive uh, note to end this discussion on, Shanoa. Thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Your time. Thanks so much, Mahesh.